Hello, Freedom House. You guys doing great today? You're looking good. You're looking good. I want to make a public service announcement before I get started today. Um, just in case, as I preach, you see some glitter on me, <laughs> see me shimmer a little bit. It's just the Holy Spirit. No, um, we just had our authentic one night, which how many of you ladies were here? Incredible. Kaylee McEnany was off the charts, wasn't she? I mean, just incredible. But there is glitter everywhere in this building. And so I was back in the green room and I sat down, uh, you know, my stuff earlier and I was like, Tammy, there's glitter everywhere. So if you see me, you know, that's, that's probably what it is. But it's great to be here with you guys today. My name's Olin Carter. Um, I serve here on our teaching team. Now, if you're new, you might be wondering, who is this amazingly attractive bald guy and why is he up there and not the senior pastor? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because for many years, Pastor Troy, he's our senior pastor, him and Pastor Penny, they're incredible. He would preach almost every Sunday. But as we've grown, we have multiple campuses. And I love his vision that it's not just all about him preaching every message every Sunday at every campus, streaming him on video. No, he said, I'm going to raise up a team of pastors, communicators that can preach, so you get somebody live here in person. Isn't that amazing? So let's honor our senior pastors. Yeah, give them a hand. They, they don't ask us to do that. They don't ever ask me to say, say that, but I, I just love to honor them because without that, I wouldn't get to be here and do what I get to do, which I love so, so much. And before we jump into God's Word today, I do want to take a moment and greet those that are joining us online. We have an online campus as well. So this, this room is bigger than what you see here. We have people right now joining us in, uh, in Hawaii, New York, North Carolina, Puerto Rico. Hope you guys are having some great weather out there. And Florida. So you guys give it up for them. Our online campus. We never know how many people are just, just watching, tuning in right now. So we just love that. Um, and before, also before we jump in, just um, I want to hit this because this series, we're talking, up. It, it, the series is Revelation, but it's really seven, the number seven, because we're focusing on the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. But something that's really important is, as a church, as a culture, as Christianity in America, how do we know where to go? How do we know what's coming? We're not going to cover all the prophecies in Revelation this month. We don't have time. Amen. We'd be here for seven months. But it's important before you can know where you want to go, you need to know where you are. And so these seven letters are helping us as a church to understand, hey, the signs of the times, where are we? And this is a great book. We have this in our Salt Resource Centers by Dr. David Jeremiah. Where do we go from here? We, we picked this book, honestly, because Pastor Troy read this book and was raving about it, really excited about it. And so if you're curious, you want to learn more, you want to go deeper, this is a great book. Go and, and, and get this, read it, figure out where we are as a church and get some revelation on where we're headed as a country. I think it's really important. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's jump into God's word. We're in this series, as I said, called Seven. We're focusing on the seven churches. And I've got a lot to cover today, so we're going to jump right in. If you're a Christian, you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, cheat off a Christian next to you. I know, we all, we all have our phone on our, our uh, Bible on our phone apps or whatever today. Hey, listen, I'm preaching off an iPad, so I'm not judging anybody. It's okay, it's okay. But how many of you have a physical Bible? Hold it up. There, don't you feel a little more spiritual, though, when you have a big Bible? Just the heft, you know? It just, it makes you feel more spiritual. Amen. 
Well, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be reading today about the church in Sardis. The church in Sardis. Revelation 3, verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, if you're not familiar with the first couple chapters of Revelation, this is Jesus. And so Jesus himself is speaking. He's giving John a revelation, letters, a message to these individual churches and these individual, these specific cities um, to, to speak to them. And he says, I know your works. Can I get oh me or an amen or an oh me? Yeah, some, sometimes when Jesus knows your work, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's worrisome. Amen? <laughs> like, uh-oh. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3, he says, remember then. What you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who, who conquers, or another translation says overcomes, will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. What a promise. Can I get an amen on that? Man, amazing. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Reputation means overall quality or character as seen or judged by people, by other people in general, or recognition by other people of some characteristic or ability. Now, the first thing we need to understand and that Jesus makes very clear in this admonition, this letter, this warning to this church in Sardis, is that there is a big difference between your reputation with people and your reputation with God. Those are two very different things. And sometimes it's possible for us as a church, for us as individuals, to have a great reputation with people, for people to think we're godly, for people to think we're alive, for people to think we love the Lord. But God says, hey, I know the truth. I know your works. Whether you're hot, whether you're cold, God knows our hearts. God sees so there's a big rep difference between our reputation with man and our reputation with God. And the truth is, most of us spend our lives fixated, focused on our reputation with people. That's just the truth. We're preoccupied with how people see us. Now, I know there's some of you in here today, because of your personality type, some of you are going to say, not me, I don't really care what people think about me. And there are some people, and, and you know who they are when I say this, you're going to think of certain people. They're very brash, they're very loud, they're very bold, right? Sometimes they don't have much of a filter, you know, the people I'm talking about. Some of you are laughing because you're like, oh yeah, I know that person. I know that person, right? And they'll proudly proclaim, I don't care what people think about me. I just say whatever, I just do whatever. I don't care what people think about me. And if you're one of those people, let me just let you know something. If you're breathing air, everybody in here breathing today? 
Take a breath in. Take a breath out. See, if you're breathing, you're a human being, you care what people think about you. And if you're one of those people that says, I don't care what people think about me, you're one of the special few that we call liars. <laughs> because you're a liar. You're lying in church. Because we all care. We care what people think about us. Most of us spend the majority of our life really obsessed or consumed with what people think about us, with how I look to other people. Now, this can be proved very simply by looking at the older among us, especially when guys get to be like their 80s. Because if you didn't care what people thought about you, you'd live differently. You'd act differently. You'd speak differently. You would drive differently. You would dress differently. And see, when you get in your 80s, you just stop caring, right? We've all had that grandpa. It's like, hey, grandpa, what are you wearing? And it's like, I don't know, and I don't care. Are you going to go outside in that? Sure am. And just walks out the front door, right? And you're like, people are seeing you right now. But when you get to a certain age, you just don't care anymore, right? It's like, I'm done. I'll wear whatever I want whenever I want. I will do whatever I want. That is truly not caring, and we're not there yet. You got to pay your dues to get there, amen? And something that really stood out to me as I was studying this and thinking through my life and just the reality of people and how we are so obsessed with, with this and our reputation and how people view us is the fact that we're all outraged when people judge us falsely, right? When someone tries to put something on you that's not you, Oh, you're a, you're a seven, you're a three, you're an Enneagram this, or you're, you're this kind of person, or you like this kind of music, or you're, you're lazy, or you're late, or you're this, or you're that. And somebody tries to put that on you, and you're like, no, I don't. No, I'm not. You're like, that's not me. That's not my personality. That's not my habits. That's not my, you're like, you get mad, right? You start pushing back like, no, that's not me. That's not the real me. So we get really mad. We get, we get outraged when people try to judge us falsely. And yet, most of us desperately hope no one ever gets to see the true us. We're terrified that if for anybody to ever truly know, I mean, think about it for a minute. If, if everybody in this room could see what you thought this morning, uh -huh. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, ooh, that might not be so good, right? Like if you come to church today, we got this little thing we put in, and, and we just blast your thoughts up on the screen. This place would be empty, <laughs> right? That way this place would be empty because we get mad when people judge us falsely, but yet we don't want people to really see the real us. We live in a world today where people are famous for being famous, and I need you young people to explain this one to me. How are people famous for being famous? Sometimes I have to ask our staff. I'm like, there are a lot, we have a lot of young people on our staff. And I'm like, who is this person? What have they done? And they're, oh, they're an influencer. or They're big on whatever. What's the TikTok or whatever? And I'm like, famous for what? Well, they're just, you know, everybody knows who they are. They're just really famous. I'm like, so they're famous for being famous? That's the country we live in today. That's the culture we live in. As a nation, we're addicted to reputation. We're addicted to how people view us. Now, this letter was written to a church in a city named Sardis. Now, this city, it had a long reputation, a long history, a history 
of humiliation. Didn't start that way, though. You see, this city was built, it was 1,500 feet higher than in elevation than everything around it. So it was literally a city on a hill. So you have this strong city with big walls, a strong presence, and it's sitting 1,500 feet up. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, this city came known as the impenetrable city, the strong city, the city you could never breach, and no army had ever defeated it. It was so strong that most armies wouldn't even try. They would camp outside the gates a little bit and just give up because it was like there's no point in trying to get into Sardis. Sardis is tough, man. Sardis is the place. It's the city on a hill. You cannot defeat Sardis. So it had this reputation for many, many years. But the interesting thing is that twice in its history, it was actually defeated. Twice in its history. This impregnable city, this fortress on high, it was defeated. Now, both times it was defeated because those charged with defending the city had kind of fallen asleep at their post. They kind of got a little arrogant. This one time, the first time the city was defeated, this king of that area went to fight the Persians. He's pretty cocky. He thought, I can take them. Has his army arrayed. They go into Persia. He goes into battle, but they start to lose. The Persians are too strong. And so they turn around and they start to run. And this king is terrified. He's like, man, if the Persians get me, it is over. He knows they'll kill him. They'll just decimate his men. So he says, if I can only make it to the city of Sardis. If I can make it to Sardis, I can get in those gates, I'll be okay. Because nobody can breach the walls of Sardis. Nobody can get in that city. So he makes it. He gets in the gate. They shut the gates behind him. He takes a sigh of relief. He's like, I made it. I'm in Sardis. That guy can have a million troops. He's never going to breach these walls. He can't get in here. And so that night, the king, he just, oh, he laid in his bed. He just slept soundly. All the soldiers were resting. I mean, they were comfortable. They were cocky. They were almost arrogant in their defended position. They thought, hey, they can do whatever they want out there. We're in here. We're in Sardis. They can't get to us. So all the soldiers are not paying attention. They have a light city watch. I mean, they're not even worried. Except This one soldier, he's up on the top of the wall, and they're probably just talking or something, and He's got his helmet off, and however it happens, his helmet drops. He, he, he drops his helmet. It hits and goes over the wall. Falls down to the bottom, kind of rolls down this little hill. And this arrogant soldier, he thinks, well, I'll just walk down there and get it. No big deal. Not like the enemy can do anything. They're probably asleep. They're not watching. It's nighttime. So he comes out of this secret little passageway. He walks down this little goat trail, and he just picks his helmet up. He just walks back in the city like no big deal. But here's the problem. The problem is the enemy was watching. They're watching and they're seeing and they're like, did you see where he came out of? Did you see that little trail? I mean, he walked with ease. I mean, if he could walk that trail, we could walk that trail. So they get a few guys. They go up to the trail. They climb their way up and they get inside the walls. Now, before they can sound the alarm, before they can wake everybody up, it's too late. They've already gotten in the walls. They've killed many of the guards. They've got the gates opened up. The army's coming in. They're screaming. They're yelling, the enemy's in, the enemy's in. But it's too late. The battle's already 
lost. Why? Because the city didn't have high walls? Because the city didn't have advantages? No, it had all those advantages. The reason it happened is because they were prideful and arrogant and they fell asleep at their post. The, guard, the guards stopped guarding. They got prideful in their position. And the city was utterly humiliated because their reputation was exposed. They were unworthy of that reputation as an impenetrable city because this city that for hundreds of years no army could breach, now it had been beaten. It happened again a second time. And so Jesus knew when he was writing this letter, he knew that the people in this city lived every day with the knowledge of this historic humiliation. This once proud city now lived in the shadow of their defeats. See, these men that used to walk around and say, I live in Sardis. Nobody breaches our walls. I'm, I'm, I'm from Sardis. Where are you from? I'm from Sardis. They were proud of their city. See, now when people ask, where are you from? Oh, I'm, um, you know, down the road. I'm, what city do you, you live in? I, I, live in uh, I live in Sardis. Oh, <laughs> I live in Sardis. See, everybody knew now. See, they had been embarrassed. They had been humiliated. And Jesus knew. When he's writing this letter, he's letting the church know, and he understands, and he knows they understand that this mighty city, even though they had all these advantages, they had been humiliated. And he's trying to let the church there know, listen, guys, even though you have every advantage, even though you have the gospel, even though you're this mighty church in this wealthy city and you're doing well, you too can fall. You can fall from your place of influence in God's kingdom. They as a church could fall. Jesus is sounding the alarm. He's saying, warning. Guys, wake up. The enemy is at the gates. You're not paying attention. You're taking this for granted. You need to wake up. Does this remind you of anybody? You see, I think of all the seven churches in the book of Revelation, this one reminds me the most of the church in America. See, we think we're so mighty. We, we think we're so proud. We think the whole world revolves around us. And as Americans, we can't imagine losing a battle, right? We go out and we see a great movie like Top Gun, and man, man, that was a good movie, wasn't it? Top Gun 2, that was great. You come out of that thing and you're like, who could beat us? We got Tom Cruise. And that guy can launch an airplane over silos. Like, I mean, he, he can do anything. This guy's incredible. And we leave these movies and we feel so proud to be Americans. We think we can never be defeated because we've been running the show around here for what? 100 years? Ooh. Sardis had been undefeated for hundreds and hundreds of years. At this time, when Jesus wrote this letter, the city was 1,200 years old. They had been the city on the hill, un, unbeatable, way longer than America's been on top, but they fell because they were prideful. So I went to the movies one time. It was an action movie. This was years ago with a buddy of mine, and he's from Guatemala, and we're sitting here. We used to love to go see these action movies together, and we're sitting here watching this movie, and the hero, you know, saves the day, and I noticed he kind of looking around, and he kind of chuckled during that part, and I'm like, What's he chuckling about? You know, it was like an action scene. I was like, nothing funny. And then later after the movie, I asked him, I'm like, hey, man, what, what were you laughing about? 
And he said, well, you wouldn't understand. You're an American. And I'm like, okay. Like, what? I don't understand. Like, what? Just tell me what it is. And he's like, well, it just... The way you Americans think, it's all right, don't worry about it. You know, it's no big deal. And I said, no, no, I want to know, what is it? You know, tell me what it is. And he says, well, has it ever occurred to you that in every single movie, the hero that saves the world is always an American? He goes, it doesn't even occur to you. It's always like a white guy from New Jersey. He's like, it's, it's never like a Guatemalan. It's never somebody from China. It's, it's, it's always an American. He goes... And he goes, I get it, because y'all make the movies, and the movies are made in Hollywood. I, I get that. And he goes, but he said, just as someone from another country, when I look around, you just take for granted that the heroes always look like you. The heroes are always from America. Like, y'all are just, the whole world revolves around you. And I thought, man, I never thought about it like that, but he's kind of right. As Americans, we have a reputation. We have a reputation as a rich and powerful nation. We have a reputation, at least we used to, of being a Christian country. And the American church has enjoyed a reputation as well. See, Christianity started in Israel, but it quickly spread to the area right between Europe and Asia. Now, Pastor Penny talked about this a little bit last week, but if you were to look at these seven churches that Jesus is writing a letter to, all seven churches, they would be found in what today is modern-day Turkey, okay? Now, I would imagine that these Christians that lived in these seven cities, that lived in this place between Asia and Europe, this place close to Israel that today we would call Turkey, they all lived in the same little area. I would imagine that back then, because the Apostle Paul himself had like come and he had went and started their church, right? And they're writing letters to these churches, and they have the biggest churches and the biggest pastors. It's like Jerusalem and then here. I mean, this is kind of like the hot spot of Christianity. And I, I would bet that they all thought it would always be that way, that Christianity would always be strong in Turkey, that that area, I mean, this is the headquarters of Christianity. This is where Christianity lives. This is where the churches are. I mean, this is it. I mean, the gospel will spread, but we're the center point. Well, if you got on a plane today and you flew to Turkey, is it a Christian country today? No. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian church in Turkey today. You go to Turkey today, it's predominantly Muslim. And so these Christian churches who were so prideful in thinking that, hey, if God's going to move, he's got to do it through us. I mean, we're kind of the center of the world. These scriptures, everything's written to us. Didn't last, did it? Didn't last. The church spread to Europe and then eventually to America. And for many years, we as the American church, we've sent more missionaries, more money, more foreign aid. We've planted more churches in other nations than probably any nation, maybe ever, right? That's who we are as America. That's kind of been our reputation. We've been alive. I mean, the church here, we're doing it. We're the center. If God's going to move, he's got to do it through us. But things are starting to change. Back in 1970, less than half of all the Christians in the, in the world were found in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Most of the Christians in the world were found here or in Europe. But today, by, by 2020, this number is closer to 65%. 65%. 
See, we're not the majority of Christians anymore. The church is growing, and it's growing in other places. And we have to understand that God can use his church anywhere to bring about revival. There's nothing that says he has to use America. There's nothing in the scripture that says, well, if God's going to bring about the end times, if God's going to bring about revival, if Jesus is going to come back, he's got to do it through America. There's nothing that says that. We just take for granted because of our American pride and our American culture that God is always going to move here. But listen, the church of Jesus Christ is growing like crazy in China, in the Middle East. Why isn't it growing here? Maybe we've let something slip. I believe we're in great danger as a church in America and we need to wake up. We need to hear the alarm bells that Jesus is ringing. Just like the church in Sardis, the church today in America, we have every advantage. We have received the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. We know the truth. The truth is available. We have, we have Bibles everywhere. As a church, we just give Bibles to people. Like we can afford to have boxes of Bibles. If someone needs a Bible, we'll give you a Bible. You have the free Bible app on your phone. We have seminaries in every major city. We have churches everywhere. We have money. We have resources. We have tools. We have people. We have every advantage to get the gospel out. But just like Sardis, we can't rest on our laurels. We can't think because we have every advantage that we're just going to usher in the, the move of God. We can't just take for granted that God's going to do it because we have a choice to make. Just like this church there that fell asleep, just like the mighty city of Sardis, every church and every believer can also fall asleep at their post. We can fall asleep at our post. We can fall in love with our reputation as a country and as a church. We might have a reputation for being alive, but we can become spiritually dead and asleep. Jesus says, I know your works. I know your works. I know your heart. I know what you do. I know why you do it. And so our good works that come from a wrong motive don't impress Jesus. Our sins and our struggles don't surprise Jesus. We all stand totally exposed before the Lord. So what does that mean for us? Here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want you to hear this message today as someone who's really trying to live for God and start overanalyzing everything. Jesus didn't write this letter because they were getting a couple things a little wrong, right? And, and we're not called as Christians to sit back and just be overly introspective and just overly analyze our lives all the time. Am I really a Christian? Am I really hearing from God? Am I really doing what's right? Is my church really right? That's not the call here. You see, John, the same author here, writes in 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. He says, and by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. See, what John is saying is, listen, if your own heart's condemning you today, if your faith is in Jesus, God is greater than your heart. God's not calling us to be timid. He's not calling us to lack confidence in his love for us. He's not calling us to beat ourselves up. That's not what this is about. He says in 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 and 18, 
He says, so we have come to know and to believe what? The love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. God's not calling you to fear. Jesus didn't write this letter to make them afraid. See, the difference between shame and conviction is the enemy will come to you and he will try to shame you for who you are, not for what you've done. And shame doesn't bring hope. Shame brings defeat. When you start living in shame, you just, you just want to quit. You just want to give up. But conviction always brings hope. See, shame says you're going the wrong way. You're going to crash. You're going to die. All is lost. You can't recover. God doesn't love you. That's what shame says. That's what the enemy says. But what Jesus says, what the Holy Spirit brings is conviction. He says there's a fork in the road. There's a right. There's a left. Turn left. He gives you hope, and this letter is about hope. He says there is no fear in love. This is not a call to be afraid. God doesn't want his, his believers, his church, his bride to live in fear. This isn't a call for you to question your salvation, question your heart, question your relationship with God. He says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected, matured, developed in love. See, the mature believer stops questioning God's love. The mature believer lives out of an assurance of God's love. And God wants us to live confidently in assurance of his love. But here's the thing, if we're assured in his love, when we know Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, I will produce fruit. Jesus told his disciples, he says, guys, I love you. The Father loves you. I'm doing this because I love you. I want your joy to be full. And he says, but if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, if you abide in me, you're going to bear fruit. You're going to be fruitful. And true faith always produces faithfulness. True faith always produces faithfulness. When we live by faith, that's trust in a God who is faithful. So when I live not by sight, but by faith, I'm living based on the fact that my God is so faithful and so trustworthy that I can have confidence he'll do what he said he's going to do. So when I live my whole life, my morning, I wake up in faith. When I eat, I eat in faith. When I work, I work in faith. When I parent, I parent in faith. When I'm married, I'm a husband by faith. Everything I do is by faith. Why? Because I have confidence in a faithful God who always honors his word. And so when I live by faith, I begin to replicate the one I have faith in. When I live in confidence because he is faithful, I just begin to be faithful. I'm going to bear fruit because I'm faithful to the reason he called me. And so true faith produces 
faithfulness. We will become faithful and we will become fruitful. So the reason that Jesus warns the church in Sardis is what does he say? He says, because I have not found your works, what? Complete. They had works. And there are plenty of churches today in America who have works. They have beautiful buildings. They have lots going on. They have works. We have works. You probably have some works. But Jesus says, I found that your works are not complete. They're missing something. There's something in the recipe for the faithfulness that's missing, and so it's not producing fruitfulness. There's no spiritual fruit because something is missing. Now, what could cause people to see our works and think we're alive when really we're dead? What could cause that? What could cause a church, a nation, to look alive, to look like we're strong, to look like, oh, we're a real church. We're out here doing things for God. We're building the kingdom. What could cause us to look the part but not be the part? There's only one answer. is if we've lost our why. We've lost the why behind our what. We've lost our purpose. We're doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And when we do, Jesus says, listen, apart from me, you can do nothing. And what does Jesus mean when he says that? doesn't mean you can't do anything, right? You can be a good old heathen, right? You can be an atheist. You can just, you know, you can not know God, not serve God, not believe in God. You don't have to be a Christian. You can just be a person that doesn't know God from a hole in the ground, and you can go out and do things, but you can't bear spiritual fruit. You can work a job. You can love your family. You can do lots of good things, but you can't bear spiritual fruit. Jesus says, if you're going to bear spiritual fruit, you must abide in me because the power that generates spiritual fruit, it only comes through this vine. There is no other. You must be connected with me. You must be submitted to me. You must be faithful to me because if you are not connected to me, you can bear no fruit. You can do nothing. And so the why is more important than the what. The why is more important than the what. Now, have you ever heard of this term? It's called agritainment. Any of y'all ever heard that term before? Agrit- I hadn't either until like a couple weeks ago. I was... Looking at this, and it kind of caught my eye, there's this new thing sweeping the country. It's called agritainment or agritourism. Now, we actually have a great example of it just right up the road. It's called Hodges Farm. Anybody in here ever been to Hodges Farm? Me and my wife, we moved last year, but we used to live right down the street from it. I used to drive by it like every day. Hodges Farm, beautiful place. Little family farm, but it's really small. It's really cute. You know, they have, they have things for the kids. And this is happening all across America because these big producing real family farms that they've held for generations. They, they're shrinking, they're getting smaller, they're selling off their land, and they're getting to a point where they can't survive anymore actually being a real farm. And so this is what they decided to do. We gotta survive, we gotta pay the bills, so we're going to go into agritainment. We're gonna pretend to be a farm. So we're gonna invite you to bring your kids and we'll do a hayride. It's going to be a lot of fun. And we'll do a corn maze. And you can pay $12 and you can go walk in the corn maze. Have y'all ever done a corn maze before? Every time I'm in the middle of that corn maze, I'm like, what have I done? 
I gave them money to infuriate me, right? I'm like on my phone, like, where am I? But this is what they do, agritainment. And you go for an hour or two, and you kind of get the feeling of what it's like to be a farmer. Now, you don't have to get up at 5 a.m. You don't have to do the work of a farmer. You don't have to sacrifice like a farmer, but you get to feel like a farmer for a few minutes, and then you get to go home and go back to your nice, cushy life. I submit to you that this is what the American church has become. We have a lot of churches where people show up on Sunday for their hour pretend session at being a Christian. I'm going to come in and I'm going to sing some songs that make me feel some goosebumps, almost like a real Christian. And then I'm going to hear a motivational speech. They might even say a scripture or two, but usually not. And then I'm going to go home totally unchanged. But man, for that hour, I felt like a Christian. Now, I'm not being challenged to sacrifice like a Christian. No one's calling out the sin in my life. I'm not being challenged to actually follow Jesus. But boy, it felt really good. It felt really good for that, that hour I was there. You see, these churches, they're producing programs and services. They have beautiful buildings with beautiful steeples, but they're producing no spiritual fruit. They're pretend churches. In the spirit, we're not called to give hayrides. And if you can come to church and you go to your church every single week and you hear the gospel preached and you're never convicted of your sin, you're never challenged to live differently, you're not confronted with the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't hear words like cross and blood and sin, you're not attending a real church. You're just going for the hayride. Nothing wrong with a good hayride every once in a while. Some hot chocolate in the fall, right? A little pumpkin spice. It's not going to get you into heaven. It's not going to produce real lasting change, and it's not going to produce spiritual fruit. Jesus looks down at the hayride, and he says, I know your works, and they're missing something. They're missing a faithfulness and integrity to the gospel and the truth. Pastor Troy mentioned on our 20-year celebration video, the five purposes of the church. They come out of this book he read, he said 14 times. It's called The Purpose Driven Church. Great book. And in this book, Rick Warren, he says there are five purposes for the church. There's worship, there's discipleship, there's evangelism, there's fellowship, there's outreach. And these are all true. And many of these churches are doing some of these five things. But here's the thing. Worship without faithfulness to God is just a concert. It's just music. Discipleship, preaching of the word without conviction is just inspiration with no change. It's just a glorified TED Talk. You can get that on YouTube. You don't need to come to church. That's not the gospel. Evangelism has become non-existent because how can you evangelize if you're not preaching the truth? How can people get saved if you never mention sin? What are they getting saved from? I had a good friend locally. He went to a large church in Charlotte that will remain nameless, but he said every Sunday they do an altar call and hands would go up. And he said, and I always wondered, what are they saying yes to? He left that church because he said, they didn't preach the gospel. He said, hands are going up, but they never mentioned sin or Jesus or the cross. He's like, I don't know what they're accepting. 
Fellowship, it's just fruitless fun. We can hang out all day, but without Jesus, it's not going to produce anything. Outreach, great. I love outreach. Maddie here, she, she does a great job. She runs our outreach. I love outreach. I love helping the poor, helping those that are in need. That's great. Jesus calls us to do that. But too many churches are out taking people who have never met Jesus to hand out some food and clothes so they can go home and feel better about themselves for an hour. It's not the gospel. And everything we do as a church is to preach the gospel. So when we do outreach, we're loving people and we're telling people we love you. Why? Because he first loved us. I'm giving you some food. Why? Because I know the bread of life. And so I'm going to do outreach. Why? It's going to pour out of a heart of love because I've been changed. Everything we do must flow from our why. Proverbs 16, 2. People may be pure in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their motives. Let's make sure our heart is producing from the right motivations, Freedom House. Let's make sure we're not just giving a good hayride. Let's make sure we're not just putting on a good show. Let's make sure we come here with the right heart, with the right motivation, faithful to the God that is the very purpose of us being here. What does this mean to us? I'll close with a couple quick points. You can write these down. Very simple. Number one, let's be humble and brokenhearted, not prideful and self-righteous. This is not a message to say, we've got it figured out. And it's not a message to say, look at all those churches. They're not doing it right. No, listen, we're the American church. And the churches that are getting it wrong, they're our brothers and sisters. And we need to be sounding the alarm. We need to be brokenhearted. God, save our nation. God, restore our churches. God, bring the gospel back. Give pastors a, a heartbeat and a backbone in our pulpits. That's how, that should be our heart. We should be on our face weeping before God. Our heart should be broken. We shouldn't be prideful and self-righteous. Number two, let's stay faithful and fruitful, not self-centered and lazy like the church in Sardis. Many scholars, it doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say exactly what they were doing, but most scholars and theologians think that they were so blessed in the economy and they were so accepted, they didn't want to lose their acceptance, their reputation with the people in the city, and so they quit sharing their faith. They quit telling people that Jesus is Lord. When they said, hey, we're going to do these offerings to Caesar, they just, they just went along with it. They just went along with it. They just, I'm going to go along to get along. I'm just going to go along with it because I've got a business and I've got a family and I don't want to rock the boat. Let's not be self-centered. Let's not get caught up in chasing the super spiritual or the novel things. Too many people in the last 20 years, we come to church hoping to learn some new trick to be more blessed. Listen, I'm blessed enough. If Jesus never did another thing for me, and God loves you, he'll bless you. I don't worry about that. God loves you. But I come to church to be provoked to good works. I come to church to hear the word of God and be challenged. I come to church to worship God with his people. I don't come to hear all oh, the new latest prayer of Jabez and I'm going to learn how to say the magic words and get more blessings. Listen, your heart's right after God. He'll take care of you. You don't have to focus on it. God will take care of you. Lastly, let's treasure God's reward, not our reputation. Let's not be fixated on how other people view us. Let's not be fixated on how people look at me. Let's instead focus on the reward on the reward. I want to end with this today. And I want to ask you to stand on your feet with me for just a moment. I want to ask you to, 
to bow your head and close your eyes because I want you to picture something in your mind for a moment. Jesus, in writing this message, this letter to the churches, when he gets to the end, he gives a startling promise. And I want you to close your eyes and I want you to imagine for a moment, this is the promise Jesus gives. You're standing in heaven. You're in the throne room. And there are millions of Christians. There's angels singing, flying around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. There are apostles and and prophets. There are people from the scriptures you see. I mean, there's a who's who from the Bible. There are believers who have gone before you who, who have been martyred, have given their lives for their faith. And in this moment, in the throne room, the Father looks to Jesus and he says, Son, who are the faithful? Son, point them out. Who are the faithful? And what Jesus promises is in that moment, if you overcome, if you stay true to me, if you don't fall in love with your reputation, but you lay it down, you stay faithful to me, the one who called you, Jesus says, in that day, when my father says, son, who is faithful? He says, I will cry out your name. Imagine for a moment, with all those people gathered around, the father is looking, the angels are singing, and he cries out your name. Is there anything we could desire more than that? Is there any greater promise that could be made than that? That will be there on that day. And when he says, who is faithful? He'll call out your name. Do you want that today? If you want that, lift your hands up right now. Lift your hands up to God. If you're online, lift your hand up right where you're sitting. If you're having coffee, if you're sitting there in your living room, just put it down. Lift your hands up to God. And if you've never given your heart to Jesus, now is the time to do it. But I know many of you have. And in this moment, we're going to pray this together. A declaration, a commitment to our God that we are never going to be ashamed. That on that day, we want to be found faithful. That should be our heart's cry. Church, let's pray this together. Join together. Pray this out loud. Say, Father God, I will never be ashamed. You have saved me. I give you my heart. I give you my life. Jesus is my Lord. He died for me. So I will never be ashamed. I want to be found faithful. Make me fruitful. Restore our nation. Restore our churches. Use me in Jesus' name. Amen.